Jesus, the head of the church, went through a lot. In fact, in John chapter 19, uh, beginning in verse 28, we read these two simple words, after this. Of course, that begs the question, after what? Let me just remind you what we have been studying. After being taken in bonds from the Mount of Olives, after enduring terrible multiple trials, both before the Jewish religious leadership and the Roman governing authorities, after being mocked, after being slapped in the face, after being beaten, whipped, after having a very crown of thorns impaled upon his head, after being forced even to carry the horizontal part of his own cross to the place of death, crucifixion, after being stripped naked, that was the Roman fashion, after being pierced through with nails, fastening him to the cross, after this, Jesus, the text says, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, again, it leads to the question, what things? Well, I'll tell you the answer. Everything the incarnate Son of God came to do, he done did. After all was accomplished, that's what we're talking about, specifically with reference to redemption. That's the primary reason when the, why the God who was all, always there became enfleshed so as to take our place. He came to be a substitute and in so doing uh, to redeem us. After all that was accomplished, we read, and in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said two words, I thirst. Please pause to find this to be remarkable. God thirsting. Jesus, the God-man, is thirsty. Can you fathom it? He is, you see, in his essential nature, fully God, and yet he came to suffer and die as fully man. Jesus, therefore, from the cross declared, I am thirsty. The one without beginning nor end, the one who always was and will be, the one who is the very agent of creation, the one who could walk on water, the one who is in fact himself the water of life, that one is dying of thirst. The Son of God is experiencing real human suffering in a real human body, and therefore he declared from the cross, I thirst. This was typical of those in crucifixion, dehydration, took place. You see, the impaled one was finding it increasingly difficult to breathe. As a result, there came to be a lack of oxygen both in the lungs and in the blood. Therefore, carbon dioxide levels went up really high in the blood. The heart, in response, would beat much too fast in order to bring more oxygen, you see, into the blood. Therefore, the blood pressure would reach such dangerously, critically high levels that plasma, a part of the blood, would actually be forced out of the walls of the blood vessels into the area between the thorax and the lungs, the chest cavity. 
And so the fluid lost from the blood could only be replaced by drinking massive amounts of liquids. And therefore, the Lamb of God, going through all this, uttered these words, I thirst. And we read this in verse 29, a jar of sour wine, cheap, vinegar-like wine, was standing there. And so they, Roman soldiers, put a sponge full of sour wine upon a branch of hyssop. You've heard of hyssop. And they brought it to his mouth. The Roman soldiers did this. Hyssop was then, even now, plentiful in Israel. The Romans had it available. Here's what hyssop looks like, in case you're wondering. It uh, is a bush. It had stems that could grow two to three feet long, and it had leaves emanating from the stems. This would mean, if you think about it, that Jesus was probably hanging on a cross much lower to the ground than is commonly depicted in paintings and even in our imagination. In fact, it would have looked something more like this. The Lord would perhaps have only been two to three feet off the ground. Therefore, the Roman soldiers could have taken this wine on a sponge using the stem of a hyssop plant, raised it up to his mouth. Hyssop, you've heard about it before. It was mentioned in Exodus chapter 12. A long time ago, Israel was in bondage for 400 plus years in Egypt. They cried out to God. They laid no claim to their merits. God doesn't hear our cries for our rights, but he responds to our cry, our desperate cry for his grace and mercy. He heard Israel's desperate cry for deliverance and provided it. You know about the plagues and all the rest, and the massive great deliverance God imposed upon Israel. First, God said, I want you to find an unblemished male lamb, sacrifice it. Apply its blood to the doorposts of your homes. Do it in faith. And when my angel of death passes over, that's how we got the name Passover, ancient Jewish holiday. When the angel of death sees the blood applied on your doorposts by faith, death will be forced to pass over. And they were to apply this blood using a hyssop plant. And now... Thousands of years removed from it here in John chapter 19. We're reading about hyssop again because don't you see the ultimate Passover lamb? The Lord Jesus is about to die on Passover. And I wonder if hyssop is a link once again connecting us to the foreshadowing of the ultimate Passover lamb in Exodus 12 with its fulfillment here in John Chapter 19, just as those people had to apply in faith the blood of a lamb to the doorposts of their heart, even today, Jew and Gentile is invited to apply in faith the blood of the ultimate Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus, to the doorposts of our hearts. So can you see the connection here? Now, sour wine, we're told, was offered to the Lord, and he accepted it, as you'll see. But please note this. This is really, really important. And you can only get this when you read the four gospel accounts. You put them together. Then I think you'll see what I'm about to say is true. This offer of wine here in John 19 is not the same offer of wine that was made to the Lord 
at the beginning of the crucifixion and as recorded in Mark chapter 15, verse 23. Here's what it said. And they, the Roman soldiers, gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. That first offer of wine was refused and rejected by the Lord. Why? Because that kind of wine had a narcotic-like, pain-killing ingredient in it, and the Lord Jesus refused to take it. Why? Because he chose to experience the undiminished pain of the full outpouring of the Father's wrath upon him so that you and I need not. He prayed, oh, Father, let this cup pass from me. And the father said, no, my son, you must drink of it. And the son said, I shall, every drop thereof. And so the Lord Jesus refused the first offer of wine. Peter didn't get it. On the Mount of Olives prior to this, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when the Lord is being taken by the Roman soldiers and the Jewish religious leaders, Peter, you know how what his personality is like, he stepped up and he thought he will save his Lord. And so he foolishly tried to interfere with the redemptive events the Lord himself came to fulfill. And so we read this, if you remember, in John chapter 18, verse 11. Then said Jesus unto Peter, put up thy sword into the sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? And so you see the Lord rejected that first offer of wine, but accepted this second one. This wine is different. This is not pain-killing wine. This is cheap, vinegar-filled wine. It didn't deaden any of the Lord's pain. So you might say, well, why did he drink it? Could I suggest two reasons? See if you accept this. And if not, it's okay. You're entitled to your wrong opinion. Here's the first reason I think he drank it. To fulfill Scripture. Listen to two passages. Here's the first. Psalm 22, verse 15. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you have brought me to the dust of the earth. Psalm 22. How about Psalm 69, verse 21? They also gave me, see, this is said by the psalmist in anticipation of its ultimate fulfillment. They also gave me gall, for my food. You see, cheap, sour vinegar wine. And my, for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Therefore, I think the first reason why the Lord partook of this particular wine is to fulfill Scripture. And here's the second reason. It was enable him, to enable him to speak. Think about the throes of crucifixion. Talk about a parched throat. He intended to end his time here on earth with a shout of victory. You'll see what I mean in just a second. But he couldn't do it. Remember, he's confined to a human body and he couldn't utter the words of triumph. And therefore, I think he partook of this substance in order to moisten his parched throat to sufficient extent so that he could utter the words we'll now read together in verse 30. Take a look. When Jesus, therefore had received the sour wine, he said, mm, it is finished. Yeah. What did he finish? Everything. 
necessary to redeem us. Everything. So to the extent even we, saved ones, think we have to add to it, we are not hearing these three magnificent words. No, it is finished. Your salvation is obtained. It is finished. And the Lord wanted to make sure he ended his time here, not with a whisper or a whimper, but with a shout of triumph, his, yes, and ours. It is finished. The ravages of sin, it's hold on us. It's over. It is finished. The potential outpouring of the wrath of a righteous God upon us, well-deserving sinners. It's over. It is finished. Those were his last words. Nothing more needs to be done. The justice of God has been satisfied. Now, I want to tell you this. This is all written in Greek. It's not a Greek class here, but I hope you're encouraged by just this little insight. The verb tense used here is called the perfect tense in Greek. In Greek, you know, there's past, there's present, there's future, just like we have in English. But they have something called the perfect tense, and that's the tense used here. But I want to tell you how significant it is. The perfect tense is used of an event that took place in the past, but which has enduring effects for the future. Something happened here, but even though we weren't there at the time, its benefits and effects pass on to the future. When the Lord Jesus said, it is finished, he's talking about his death on the cross for sin. And it has such enduring results that that event is not over and done with. It carries through to every generation, even to our own 2,000 years removed. So for us too, we ought to bask in these beautiful words they apply to us. It is finished. Listen, when you leave here tonight, don't go with guilt and shame, even over your own sin. Why don't you apply by faith the blood of the Lord Jesus and then hear him say to you, listen, you hitherto guilty one, it is finished. Go free. Very interesting, this particular phrase, it is finished, because again in the Greek, those three words are rendered by only one word. It's the word tetelestai. If I ever was going to get a tattoo, and I'm not, I often wonder when you get a tattoo and then you get old, as I am, and you are, how do you handle like the wrinkles and stuff uh, in the tattoo? Anyway, that's another story. But uh, tetelestai, if I ever got a tattoo, that's, that's what I would like. Uh, let me develop this thought. Archaeologists have found papyrus, that's what they used to write on, it's a plant, papyrus receipts, wherein someone who had a tax responsibility in ancient days, they owed the government tax, they owed a debt. When they paid their debt, the tax collector would stamp on this piece of papyrus this one word, tetelestai. It means paid in full. Let me give you another illustration. In ancient Rome, if you bucked the system, broke the laws, were convicted of a crime against Rome, thrown into jail, outside your cell, the jailer would post a sheet of paper. It would list your crime and also the extent of your penalty. In other words, how long do you have to stay in jail before you settle your debt to society? 
when you did, after a year, two years, or whatever, the jailer would come, come by and stamp on that sheet of paper this one word, to tell us die, paid in full. Then he would take it off of the wall and give it to you as you went free. And it would be of great value to you because if later anyone, even an official, came over to you and said to you, you still owe a debt, you would pull out this piece of paper and you would proudly and gloriously bestow upon this one still collecting your debt to Telestai, paid in full, I owe no debt. Could I tell you something? That's you and I if we're Christians. We're not literally wearing this stamp to Telestai, but we're going to live as we are. When the evil one, the accuser of the brethren says, you still owe, you still owe, you, we ought to shout back at him to Telestai, or if you prefer, paid in full. That's what we ought to do. Everyone ought to know once you've been cleansed by the blood of the Lord, the debt you and I owe has been paid in full. And so Jesus, with his last breath, uttered these magnificent words from the cross to tell us thy paid in full. You and I owe a debt to God. We could never pay it. Jesus paid it all. Therefore, based upon one's acceptance of his payment for that one's sin, that one goes free. One who was previously a debtor goes debt-free. For Jesus declared from the cross, to Telestai, paid in full, it is finished. Notice, he did not say, he never said, I am finished. <laughs> no, 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 we serve a risen Savior. Death couldn't hold him. He didn't say, I am finished. He said, it is finished. These words, it seems to me, ought to provide us with the greatest of comforts, no matter what may befall us. The Lord's redemptive work is finished on our behalf. It has been fully accomplished. You know about the sacrifices for sin, which the ancient Israelites offered at the temple. But do you know that those animal sacrifices never succeeded in taking away sin? They only covered temporarily the sin. It's Jesus who would come later and take away sin. The Old Testament sacrifices anticipated the coming of the Lamb of God. Now we look back to the coming of the Lamb of God. Old Testament people look to the cross forward. We look back on the cross. It's only Jesus. It's only faith in him that could take away our sin, not just superficially cover it. Therefore, Jesus declared, you're no longer a debtor. I've paid your debt. It is finished. Folks, that is the hope of the gospel message. It's what makes Christianity entirely different from any other faith perspective. Some people say, you take this road, I take that road, as long as you believe. What? No. Truth is a more important virtue than sincerity. You could be sincerely wrong about how to be right with God. And so Jesus said, offered this tremendous hope, faith in him can procure for us the satisfaction of the debt we owe God so that Jesus could declare it is finished. And having said this, look what the text says in verse 30. He bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. 
can you see the voluntariness of all this? Even at the time when it looks like authorities of a human kind are imposing themselves most upon him. Oh no, Jesus remained fully in control. Nobody took his life. He gave it up. He gave up his spirit. He controlled the very timing of his death. And so even from the cross, which could foolishly persuade us he was not in control, no way. Even from the cross, he was in control even of the very moment of his passing from this life. By the way, I think Jesus, I hope you agree, is the only one who's in control of the timing of his or her death. Did you know that? None of the rest of us are. Brother Chuck and I had the privilege of visiting a member of the church. Was it yesterday, Brother Chuck? I'm losing track already. Yesterday, we went to the memorial service to pay respects to the passing of the father of our, one of our wonderful church members. He was 90 years old. I'm told that he was perfectly healthy and fine until just a few weeks before his passing. In fact, he could do push-ups and as a 90-year-old and all the rest, and suddenly took ill, rather suddenly and passed. Want to hear the good news? He was prepared for his passing. In the same family, we heard about another loved one who passed in his 60s. 190, 160s. You, don't you see? None of us know when. Therefore, you know what we would be wise to do? Not to let our living distract us from the inevitability of our dying. Are you ready to meet with the giver of life? What will he say? One of our wonderful church members, Bob Wirt, um, shared with me the other day, he had lunch with some friends of his he hadn't seen in a while, the man, it's a married couple, the man, 91, and his wife, 93. And in the course of conversation, the man raised the issue of death and dying and because his own passing is drawing nigh. Bob, they were non-believers. Bob took the opportunity to talk to him about eternity and the certainty of where it will be spent when one accepts Jesus, the resurrection and the life. And right there over lunch, Bob Bort led this 91-year-old man and 93-year-old woman to the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, my goodness, Bob was floating. They did not let the stuff of their life distract them from the inevitability of their death. Are you prepared? The only one who could anticipate and even orchestrate and even control the time of his passing is Jesus. All the rest of us are not able to be ready to stand before our maker. Now I want to share something else with you. Uh, we're reading the gospel account written by a man named John. But you know John wrote more of the New Testament. In fact, he wrote the very last book in the New Testament, the name of which is the Book of Revelation. And in that Book of Revelation, John speaks to us in Revelation chapter 16 of the final battle, the war to end all wars. We refer to it as Armageddon. Well, where did that 
label come from? There is a place in Israel, sits on a rise overlooking a valley called the Jezreel Valley. And this particular hill is called Megiddo. The hill of Megiddo, or in Hebrew, Har Megiddo, and that's where we get the word Armageddon. That's where this final battle will begin. And John writes to us about it. Here, by the way, is a little bit of a depiction of Megiddo today. Can you see that the remains of that city on a hill? That used to be one of Solomon's fortress cities. He had horse stables there and so on. When we go to Israel, we have the privilege of going right there. You see the valley in the distance? That's the Jezreel Valley of which Napoleon said this would be a great staging area for the final war. And the armies of the world will come to that place and gather together against, let me ask you if you know, what city? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. The other day, one of our dear members suggested to me, I get too political at times when I talk about all this Israel stuff. Well, that's a good word of caution from her because I don't want to. But folks, I, I think maybe she has to bring that complaint to God. I didn't write this. He wrote this. I'm just reading to you what it says in God's word from Revelation 16. Here, I'll read to you what John says in verse 6. And they gathered them together, that is the armies of the world, to the place which in Hebrew is called Har Megiddon, the hill of Megiddo. Satan moves in the hearts and minds of a reprobate world in rebellion against God so that the armies of the world are moved, otherwise irrationally, to this particular place to wage war against Jerusalem. Why? Because Satan maybe understands parts of the Bible better than we do. That's the place to which Jesus will return. Folks, he's not coming to Alvin uh, not even Rome, he's going to Jerusalem. And whatever is rightfully in the hands of the Savior is wanted by Satan. That is not a political statement. That's a biblical statement. That's why I call for you, the people I love, to support Israel's right to the land and Jerusalem as its capital because that's where the great king is coming to. That's not political that's a biblical analysis, it seems to me. Anyway, John tells us in Revelation chapter 16, God's wrath will finally be outpoured on a sin-sick world in rebellion against him. The audacity of us to think that holy God has no response to evil. He does. And so in Revelation 16, verse 17, John says, Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl, it's a bowl of judgment, upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done, or it is finished. Once before these very words were uttered in this very land, Israel. 
I know I call our attention to that special land, but only because you can't read a chapter in the Bible that doesn't do the same. That's the land which God chose to focus his redemptive efforts on. And so the text says here, a voice came from the temple and saying from the throne, it is done. The very words which were previously uttered in this land, we've just been reading about it in John 19. These are the very words of Messiah Jesus uttered from the cross as God was finishing the work of redemption. And now from the temple, the Lord Jesus, he at that point is risen from the cross. Remember I told you, he never said, I am finished. Death couldn't hold him. He said, it is finished, the work of redemption. And after the cross came the empty tomb. Where is Jesus now? Seated at the right hand of the Father. And from that place in the end times, John, in anticipation, tells us, Jesus will utter the same words. First, he uttered these words from the cross. Then he will utter them from the throne. Same words. And so God chose that land, Israel, some people say even today, why do you evangelicals make such a big deal over Israel again? Why don't you take that complaint to the God of Israel? In this very land, two key events took place. God chose that bit of real estate for two great events, and interestingly, both of them involve blood. The first is blood shed on Mount Calvary. We've just read about it here in John 19. That is an indication of God's grace. But the second is blood shed during Armageddon. Folks, that is an indication of his holy and righteous judgment. To my knowledge, correct me if I'm wrong, there are no other options. There isn't a third. There's either the blood of God's gracious forgiveness, or there is the blood of God's holy and righteous judgment. Which is it for you? I'm very, very thankful to God that by his grace I've been enabled to apply the blood of his forgiveness. Can you see it written on me? The words to tell us die, therefore paid in full. <laughs> it's invisible, but it's very real to me. And I hope so to you as well. Folks, if by faith you have not allowed the Messiah to apply his blood of forgiveness, cleansing blood to your sin, the only other option is the application of the blood of his wrath. That is as sure to come as what we read about in John chapter 19 when the Lord said, it is finished. Whatever else may be true of you right now, at least be sure of this. I am ready to pass on into my eternity because the blood of forgiveness has erased from me any fear of death, any uncertainty about my eternity and future. I am, I'm not letting the throes of life distract me from the inevitability of death, and I do not fear the future wrath of God because it has been so sufficiently and completely and absolutely poured out on the shoulders of the Lord Jesus that he could say, paid in full. Enough is enough. Have you accepted the blood of the Passover lamb? The Bible says, though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. What could possibly cover up for the scarlet red nature of our sin other than the 
blood, red blood of the Lord Jesus. It's not complicated. Don't make it such. You either say yes to Jesus. Forgive me, O God. Cleanse me with your cleansing blood. Stamp upon me these marvelous words paid in full. Let me leave this place free and forgiven to sing your praises now and on into eternity. Listen, if that is your heart's desire, we really would love to meet with you as we conclude our service in just a minute in the room behind us called the Connection Center. It would be a great privilege to answer your questions about how could I really be connected with Jesus, the Lamb of God. We'd like to meet with you, talk with you, pray with you. And for now, as we close, could I ask you to stand? We'll sing our way out of here. I was thinking of this particular little chorus as I was preparing for tonight. Listen, he is Lord. He is Lord. How do I know that? Well, you see, he's risen from the dead. <laughs> and he is Lord. And here's the inevitable certainty where you can count on. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Will you sing that with me? Let's sing together. He is Lord. He is Lord. He is risen from the dead. And he is Lord. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ God bless you folks. Hope to see you Sunday. God bless you.